hope you heard it there. The, the question in all three passages, turn with me back to Psalm 8. We're going to work through them in order. And just to frame why we're doing this today, um, maybe you think of this as a really, really short mini-series, maybe just think of two sermons in a row. But next Sunday, if you don't know, is Palm Sunday, which means it's the final week of Jesus's life in the church calendar. The following Friday will be Good Friday, and the Sunday after that will be Easter. And Palm Sunday is traditionally connected to Jesus's entry into Jerusalem and this paradoxical experience of he's a king royally riding into the city to become king, and yet he's lowly on a donkey, and the people who are his army who is welcoming him are kids and the blind and the lame. And there's this very strange paradoxical contrast. The reason we're looking at this today, among other reasons, is that in Matthew's version, which you might read ahead of, uh, ahead of time for next week, which we'll look at on Palm Sunday in one week, in Matthew 21, um, Jesus quotes Psalm 8 as he rides into the city as part of the explanation of what exactly is going on there. And so today is very much preparation in part for getting to getting ready to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing um, in his triumphal entry in the beginning of the final week of his life. As I mentioned before, these three passages were read out loud. All three of them ask the same question. Most people would argue that Psalm 8 is the earliest one. And that Psalm 144 and Job 7 are both echoing and playing off of Psalm 8. And they all ask the question, what does it mean to be a human being that God should think about us, that God should make such a big deal out of us? All three texts agree that whatever the answer is to the question, what does it mean to be a human being, that you need to state the answer both in relationship to God and in relationship to the world. They all agree on that, but the specific emphasis in all three texts is profoundly different. I don't know if you were listening to them, but these are three really different texts that, that emphasize our humanity in different ways. And so let me say one more thing, and then we'll look at Psalm 8. Um, even as I got ready for this sermon and I thought about the title, and if you look at the title in your bulletin, it's what is a human being that, that God would make such a big deal out of us, so much of us, is it, it, there was something, even having been a Christian for over 20 years and in ministry for 15 years, I was like, is this a proper topic for a sermon? Like, isn't a sermon supposed to be about God? Isn't a sermon supposed to be about religious stuff? Like, like, isn't this like anthropology 101 when you're a freshman in college? Like, that's where you deal with this, not here. And so let me give a couple of reasons why we're going to talk about what it means to be a human being this morning. Um, the first is that as Kirk read at the beginning and walked us through with the Heidelberg Catechism, Jesus is not just God, although he is that, he is also fully human. And so if we do not know what it means to be human, we will not understand Jesus very well. One of the, the ancient heresies of the church that maybe you read in a textbook every once in a while and you're like, oh, that's a weird name, is docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. You don't need to remember it, but it's a, it, it shows up perpetually in church history, and many Christians today are functionally docetists. Docetism comes from a Greek word, dikeo, which just means something that seems to be or appears to be, but is not necessarily what it seems to be. And docetism was the heresy. Is Jesus is really God, that's for sure, but he only seems to be a human being. He only looks on the surface like he is, but if you kind of rub it away with a penny like you're doing your lottery card, and by the way, you shouldn't do your, your lottery tickets, but if you were and you were rubbing it away with a penny, that, that you'd rub Jesus's humanity off. And what's really there is his divinity and his humanity is just a facade. It's not real. And in the New Testament writers perpetually insist he is fully human. He is truly human. In fact, in many ways, he is more human than we are because our humanity is stained by sin, whereas his is not. One really helpful, simple, but profound thing you can do in the future when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, every single event in Jesus's life, if you are looking at it rightly, is both a revelation of what God is like 
and the revelation of what human beings are supposed to be like. Every single moment from Matthew 1 to the last chapter of John, those four books, is a revelation both of if God showed up and he did, this is what he would do, this is what he's like. But it's not just that. It's also this is what a human being should do in moments like these. This is what a human being looks like when he's actually reflecting God's image in the world. So that's one reason. Another reason, and I quote this often, but at the very beginning of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says, we stand in need above all else of two things the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And furthermore, you cannot have one without the other. If you try to know God without knowing yourself, you will not just not know yourself, you will not know God accurately because we are made in the image of God and we can't see God. We don't hear God directly here. Our knowledge of God is mediated indirectly in part and in significant ways through the image of God, ultimately Jesus, but, but through human beings that God reflects himself through and speaks through. And on the other hand, you cannot understand what it means to be human if you don't understand what God is like. I remember, and, and a lot of this is probably my, my un, uh, not unique, but, but kind of like dour personality as an introvert and angsty and all that. But some of it was, I think, what I heard from certain Christians and, and, and not, not that they were bad, but just unintentionally. When I first became a Christian, I had a really strong sense for a couple of years that what it meant to glorify God was to kind of diminish yourself. That what it meant to be a human being was you think about what it meant to be a Christian was you think about God, you make a big deal out of him, and you stop thinking about yourself. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. There is an aspect of humility, of self-forgetfulness, but it's actually more true that as we come to know God for who he is, we actually come to know ourselves better than we ever did before. That as we love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we actually not stop loving ourselves but love our neighbor, love God, and love ourselves wisely, better than we did before. Um, the, the, the knowledge of God leads to dignity for human beings, not to trampling their dignity in the mud, even though we're going to be humbled along the way. Um, much of what passes for anthropology, what does it mean to be a human being today in our culture, whether it's explicit or whether it's implicit in art and media and messages, is often not so much wrong as much as it is reductionistic. It is presenting a partial aspect of what it means to be human as if it was the whole story of what it means to be human. J.I. Packer, who, who died a couple of years ago, is one of my heroes, very influential on me, used to like to say, a half-truth that masquerades as a whole truth quickly becomes an untruth. And one of the reasons we are so bad in our culture at understanding what it means to be human is not because there's a lot of complete falsehoods out there, although there are some, but because often one aspect of our humanity is emphasized to the exclusion of others and presented as if it's the whole story. And, and even these three passages together are not the full story, but they do get to the heart of it pretty quickly. And so I want us to hear all three answers to the question, what does it mean to be a human being in light of um, kind of this question, what does it mean to be a human being? So look with me to Psalm 8. Let's look at our first text. This is a really famous text. I'm guessing that you recognize it. It's clearly exuberant in its tone. It's filled with wonder and astonishment. The mood of the other two texts is not that, if, if you heard them, especially the last one, Job, that, that Josh read. Um, it begins and it ends, even though the middle of it is all about the question, what does it mean to be a human being? It begins in verse 1. And it ends in verse eight with the same statement, O Lord, 
our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So right away, we learn something. To talk about human beings, you need to start and end by actually talking about God. That human beings cannot be understood in splendid isolation from their creator. To talk about human beings, you have to first talk about God. You need to bring it back to God. And all of it is framed by this sense of we are creatures created by someone else who, who's, who's not only given us his image, but has given us tasks um, in the world. The progression of Psalm 8 is very strange. Just so you know, right away, it says, you have set your glory above the heavens. That's, that, that makes sense, that, that God is glorious. But then there's this strange shift right away. And verse 2 often throws people off. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you, God, whose glory is above the heavens, whose strength is beyond all other strength, you've established your strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger in some way out of the mouths of babies and infants. Just so you know, that's the verse Jesus is going to quote as he rides into Jerusalem. Out of the mouths of babies and infants. So keep that one in mind as we think about it. To many modern readers, that verse feels like it has nothing to do with the rest of the psalm. You could almost like, it would almost be better to like erase that and just go straight to verse three. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you, God, have set in place, what is a human being? And man here does not mean male as opposed to female. It means human being as opposed to animal or angel or something else. What is a human being that you are mindful of him or her, the son of a human being? And, and not the first um, line of that sentence, but the second one, the son of man. Man there in Hebrew is Adam, the son of Adam that you care for him. Now, notice the contrast there in verses three and four. It starts by looking around at the world and the universe we live in and saying, we seem really insignificant, and we do. When I lived in Boston for about 10 years, um, I would sometimes walk through Harvard Yard, which is really, really famous there in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but it's very actually like just very simple. It's not a very impressive place, old New England brick buildings. And I would walk through and I noticed early on being in campus ministry in that area for many years that you walk by one building in Harvard Yard. If you're ever there in the future, you can notice this. And engraved in stone on one of the buildings in Harvard Yard is the question, what is man? Question mark. And it's the philosophy department at Harvard University. It's the Emerson Building, named after Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous transcendentalist. But notice, that's not how this asks the question. It's what is man, comma, that you would think about him. Harvard University and all of these great philosophy and science departments have isolated that question from the creator and just asked it as a self-evident or, or isolated, what does it mean to be a human being? And if you ask it apart from our creator, you end up, and the philosophy department, the science department at Harvard and all these other great universities have concluded this, which is you would think we'd be as significant to God or significant in the cosmos as an anthill is to us. That's how significant it looks like human beings are. And that is what the philosophy department at Harvard has concluded, that that's how significant human beings are. That is what many modern science departments conclude, that that's how significant we are in the cosmos. And yet, there's something else going on that in spite of and in contrast to the insignificance we seem to have empirically in the universe, yet, verse 5, you have decided to make human beings a little lower than the heavenly beings. And the heavenly beings there might be a reference to God, there might be a reference to angels, whatever it is, something that, that is fantastically above us, and yet we're in the same league 
as these beings that you would assume that we have no um, business being in league with. And then three things are said about us being made a little lower than the heavenly beings, but they're synonymous, they're parallelism, they're three ways of saying the same thing. First, you've crowned humanity with glory and honor. Second, you have given humanity dominion over the work of your hands. Third, you've put all things under the feet of human beings. There's three ways of saying the same thing. Notice at the very beginning, right after verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? The first statement was you set your glory above the heavens. God's glory transcends the universe he's created. And it raises the question, well, where do you see God's glory in the world that he made? And among a bunch of babies and infants who seem to be as significant as an anthill, you see it on our heads in the form of a crown. That this is the, the, the analogy I always like to use. Soulmate claims, you know what it means to be a human being? It means to be a king or queen of Narnia. That we are in charge of everything else. We are royalty. That God has entrusted the rule of the entire created order, the universe, to us. And we are given authority. We are given glory on our heads, honor, dignity. We are given responsibility to steward, to rule everything that God made. And that leads to astonishment and wonder that we would be that significant to God. By the way, because verse four is the question that the other two passages will also pick up on, let me point something out to you that, that if you're like me when you read this, you probably hear it a little differently than I think we should. The question in verse four is, what is a human being that you are mindful of him the son of man, the son of Adam, that you care for him. I think most of us in our cultural context today, we hear that as a statement of, in spite of how insignificant we look, and we do, nonetheless, God loves us. Now, that's true, but that is not what that is saying. Even the translation that you care for him is not really what the Hebrew was saying. But notice the first one, that you are mindful of him. The focus is not affection. The focus is attention, priority, focus. That is, God has uniquely singled out human beings among everything else as singularly important to him. Now, that implies that he loves us and he cares for us, and he does, just so you know. But love is not the emphasis there, importance of being singled out, that, that, that God has his attention on us. Um, I, I'm going to come back to this illustration a little while longer, but if you're the CEO of a company, it's kind of like a parable of Jesus, the CEO is God. If you're the CEO of a company and you got a bunch of people working for you and they're all sending you emails all the time, they're all vying for your attention and your right-hand man, the guy who you know basically is your second in command in the whole company, he sends you an email and then the summer intern after their fresh freshman year of college who just gets people coffee, he or she just sent you an email to, whose email do you pay attention to? The person who is more important in the way the organization works. That is the role that human beings play in the universe. We are singularly important to what God wants to do in the world, and therefore we have his eye is on us. We are his focus. We have his attention. This is Psalm 8, which itself is clearly a poetic celebration of Genesis 1. We're made in the image of God. This is, in Judaism and in Christianity, clearly the ground of what has become a more secularized version of human rights and human dignity, that because human beings are this, it doesn't matter what they do, it doesn't matter how annoying they are, it doesn't matter how much you disagree with how they live their lives, you are never allowed to treat them with contempt. 
You are never allowed to treat them as if they are not sacred and important and vitally significant to God and therefore should be to us. One of the great lines that, that, that I always think of when I come to Psalm 8, even though this is clearly not from a Christian author, but arguably one of the great American plays of the 20th century is Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. And the main character of that play, if you've never watched it or read it before, you can go check it out. It's really worthwhile is Willie Loman. And Willie Loman is a really sad figure in this play. He's really pathetic. He's really tragic. It's very much a tragedy. And he has two grown sons who both really struggle with despising him because of the way he's lived his life. Um, because he's just made so many mistakes and he's just a really miserable human being in so many ways. And at one point, it's my favorite scene in the play. There's a, a scene where one of his sons is really kind of tearing him down behind his back because, and, and he kind of deserves it because he's so hypocritical and frustrating and vain and self-deceived and all that. And the mom who also understands that Willie Loman is really, really broken. She does not, she doesn't have a, a you know, a, a, a blindfold pulled over her eyes. Nonetheless, turns to her son and says this, and as she encourages him, stop tearing him down. And she says this, I don't say he's a great man. Willie Loman never made a lot of money. His name was never in the paper. He's not the finest character that ever lived, but he's a human being and a terrible thing is happening to him. So attention must be paid. He is not to be allowed to fall into his grave like an old dog. Attention, attention must finally be paid to such a person. And that's what Psalm 8 says about us, that we are, for whatever reason, God has decided we are unbelievably important to him. And therefore, we treat other human beings as unbelievably important. And so a practice that comes out of this, if you understand what it means to be human, an attitude and a practice I'm going to give you for all three texts, all, all three ways it answers the question. And here's the first one is you don't know what it means to be a human being unless you regularly feel a sense of wonder and astonishment and awe that you've been created like this that this is our role in the universe. And therefore, what practices that lead to, like in Psalm 8, giving thanks and praise is something human beings should do on a regular basis. Just a sense of wonder, a sense of astonishment that if we are bored with the universe, if we, if we begin to say, there's just, my life is insignificant, the lives of these other pathetic small ants in the universe, they're insignificant. We don't understand what it means to be human. Wonder, astonishment, giving rise to regularly giving thanks and praise to our creator that he would have condescended to make such a big deal out of us in, in creation is, is part of what it means to be human. Jump with me to Psalm 144, at the very other end of the Psalter, almost at the end of the 150 Psalms. The mood here, and you can see the question, it arises early in verse three. Oh Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him. There's the question again, but the mood is very different in this psalm. Now it's not negative, and, and I'm not gonna read the whole psalm again, but I'll just point out that the main focus of the psalm is in the present, David is in trouble. He is in trouble, and when he looks to the future, he has lots of aspirations for what the future would hold. And you see them like in verse 12 and following, may our sons and their youth someday be like plants full grown. May our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full. May our sheep bring forth thousands. May our cattle be heavy with young. And I love the last one verse, the second half of verse 14. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. He looks at the future and says, God, would that, would that be the future that you give us? The reason these two things are connected in Psalm 144, I'm in trouble right now. And I look to the future and I have these aspirations, but God needs to do that is because to be a human being is not just to be crowned 
around with glory and honor. It is also to be incredibly weak. It is also to be fragile. It is also to be vulnerable. The first thing he says after he asks the question, oh Lord, what is man that you regard him? The son of man that you think of him? He says, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. If soulmate is true, you'd think we'd be superheroes, right? You'd think we'd be superheroes. You think it'd be like if Austin was like, hey, Nick, you want to hang out later today in Harlem? I'd be like, I see you in two minutes and I'll use my spidey powers to swing on the, the skyscrapers to get there. And yet we are so weak and we are so vulnerable and we are so fragile, both spatially in the way that we occupy space in the universe. We get sick so easily. We pull muscles so easily. We get cancer no matter what we do. Things happen to us regardless of whether we want it to or not. We are so incredibly weak, but we're also weak temporally. We are here for a moment and we're gone. Guys, I know, especially for those of you who are younger, I know you don't like to hear this from older people, but guys, I was 25 like 10 minutes ago. I'm going to be 43 this summer, and it has just flown by. It has just flown by. And yet, we're supposed to be crowned with God's glory, and we are so weak. We are so helpless. And so Psalm 44 does not react to that with, uh, oh, this sucks. It just reacts to it realistically, which is if you're going to be a good human being, if you're going to know what it means to be human, you need to see that you're crowned with glory and honor, that God has made a huge deal out of you, that, that being you is a really important thing in the universe. And you should feel a sense of awe and astonishment over that. But you should also regularly have a sense of, I am so helpless. I am so dependent. Most of what happens to me and what my future will look like is outside the control of my agency. Everything that David aspires to in verses 12 to 15, verses 12 to 14, is largely out of his control. One of the things that has been eye-opening for me in being a parent for the last 10 or 11 years is just how much more aware you are that most of what happens to Taekwondo and Ernest over the next 50 years, I will have nothing to do with it one way or the other. The things that I long for for them, I have about this much agency to bring about or to prevent. And that is true for all of us with respect to the future all the time. And we don't like to think about that. And so we just block it out of mind and we just don't think about it or we deny it. But Psalm 44 recommends a better practice with the attitude of helplessness, acknowledging your frailty, your vulnerability, your weakness, which is if you know what it means to be a human being, here's one thing you should be doing on a regular basis, like David, lifting your outstretched hands to the heavens, lifting up your head and saying, help, help. And if you do not do that on a regular basis, you do not know what it means to be human because you are incredibly weak and you are incredibly vulnerable. Eugene Peterson, in my favorite book on prayer and on the Psalms, it's, it's the um, answering God, the Psalms is tools for prayer. He says this, abstraction is an enemy to prayer. Beautiful ideas are an enemy to prayer. Fine thoughts about the universe and God are an enemy to prayer. Authentic prayer begins when we stub our toes on a rock, get drenched in a rainstorm, or get slapped in the face by an enemy. This is the language of prayer, men and women calling out their trouble to their creator, pain, guilt, doubt, despair to God. Their lives are threatened. If they don't get help, they will be dead or diminished to some critical degree. And the language of prayer for Christians is forged in the crucible of trouble. When we can't help ourselves and call for help, when we don't like where we are and we want out, 
When we don't like who we are and we want to change, we use primal language, and this language becomes prayer for Christians. In both life in general, when you're a baby and you're in pain, you just start crying out for your mom or your dad. And in prayer, language gets its start under the pressure of pain. The human condition teeters on the edge of disaster perpetually. Human beings are in trouble most of the time. Those who don't know that they are in trouble are actually in the worst trouble. Prayer is the language of people who are in trouble and who know it, but who also believe and hope that God can get them out. As prayer is practiced, it moves into other levels and develops other forms, but trouble, being in the wrong, being in danger, realizing that your foes are too many for, to handle, is always the basic provocation for prayer. Isaac Beshevi Singer once said, I only pray when I am in trouble, but I am in trouble all the time, and so I pray all the time. And that's a good understanding of what it means to be a human being. The recipe for obeying the Apostle Paul's pray without ceasing is not a strict regimen of spiritual discipline, but just keeping a watchful recognition of how much trouble you're actually in. And that's a good line. COVID, the last two years, Ukraine right now, the economy, your physical health, your aspirations for the next five years, the next 50 years, if you have any awareness of all, you know that most of what will happen in all that, you have no, you have no ability to control. You have no ability to bring about what you hope will happen. And so the attitude of helplessness, recognizing our weakness, and the practice of petition, calling out, crying out for help, rather than being self-reliant, is central to being a human being. Glory and weakness leading to praise and petition, calling out for help, are there. Let's turn to Job 7 to end it. This is the darkest of them. And I take it that you probably have some sense of the story of Job. Here's a guy who did everything right. He loves God. He loves his neighbor and everything has gone wrong. And in Psalm, and sorry, in Job 7, he is calling out to God in a deep sense of frustration. And you can see in verse 17, actually, let's start in verse 16. He says this in verse 16, I loathe my life. I don't want to be alive. Job says that at least four other times in the book. I loathe my life. I would rather not exist. I would rather not be alive. And then he says this to God. He looks at God and he says, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Why do you make such a big deal out of us as human beings? Why do you set your heart on us? Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. And if you've never felt that about your creator, you do not know what it means to be human. It is often pointed out, and there's truth to it, that religion is the opiate of the people and that people turn to God for comfort in a scary world. And one that we should, because the second thing that I just said, we're in trouble, you should turn to God for help all the time. But also we should admit people do use God religiously as a means to an end and not all religion is good. And, and so even though there's a lot of truth in that criticism, but also sometimes a misunderstanding of what it means to be human in that criticism, you should turn into your creator when you feel overwhelmed. You should turn to your creator when you see your weakness and you're afraid. It also, I think, hides the fact that the opposite, I think, is true just as much. Um, a, a famous European poet in the mid-20th century, last name Maloche, I don't know how to pronounces his full name, Cheslaw Maloche, something like that. He's a very famous poet. He actually has this line where he says, maybe religion used to be the opiate of the people. Maybe it still is for some people, but today nihilism is the opiate of the people. The idea that you will escape into the darkness of your grave without having to answer for how you have lived your life. Um, I would put it in a slightly different way, which is I have often felt, and, and by often, I don't mean that this is my main experience, but to say it hasn't just happened once or twice of just how nice would it be if my life was about nothing, 
how nice would it be if I could just do whatever I want and there was no accountability, there was no pressure and just a sense of God, would you just leave me alone? I've got like 10 minutes left. I would like to do some stuff in that 10 minutes. And, and just a sense of if God didn't exist, what a relief that would be because it is a burden to be a human being. It is a burden to feel like my life is always about something more than my own happiness, my own desires. And there is often a sense of, oh, again today, because that never goes away. The sense of responsibility. And as you see in Job 7, and it comes with suffering, because what Job is finding out is that not only has he not suffered because of his sin, but he suffered because God brought the suffering into his life to test him and to shape him in something. And if human beings are so important in the universe, not only does that mean can we call out to God for help and he hears us, not only does it mean that we feel awe and wonder and astonishment, but it also means that, and this is so important to being a human being, that your personal happiness is not the main thing about your existence. God is not primarily focused on how can I make this really fun for you in the next 10 minutes? That that is not how God looks at you any more than the way a CEO looks at the right hand man. Now, again, I don't want to say that God doesn't care about your happiness. In many ways, he cares about it more than you do, but he also cares about it differently than you do. And as a parent, Helen and I have been doing this a lot in this season of just trying to get the balance with Taekwondo and Ernest of in one sense, our main focus is we want to set you up so that you are ready to thrive, not just in your own life, but to serve the world and to serve God and to use your gifts for the next 40 years. And, and like all of us when we were teenagers and many of us right now, Taekwondo and Ernest are usually more focused on, I would like to do this now and have no other responsibility in the universe that I need to think about. And there is a, a tension that comes from that. And we all have that from God as well. And so Job asked the question, what is man, verse 17, that you make so much of him, that you set your heart in him? Why can't you just leave me alone? Then he says in verse 18, why do you visit me every morning? Why do you test me every moment? How long until you will look away from me? Why don't you leave me alone even until I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Get off my back, right? That's... That's a feeling that we often have as human beings. And so here, if the first one is glory and honor and, and, and responsibility, the second one is weakness and fragility. This one is suffering and frustration. And, and if there is anything that our culture today wishes that we could remove from the human condition, it is suffering. But one thing that we are reminded of constantly, certainly by our experience, but especially by scripture, is you cannot be the human being God wants you to be without walking through incredible suffering and having your heart broken by it and having your heart broken by the world, it is hard to be a human being. If you think it's hard, therefore I'm doing it wrong, that's already a category mistake. Even if you're doing it perfectly right, it is really hard to be a human being. And, and by the way, I've alluded to it, but as we get ready to look at the story of Jesus next week in Palm Sunday, it is not just that he comes into a world where this is true of us. It's also true that Jesus himself reflects and experiences all these things. He rides in as a king. He's crowned with glory and honor. He rides in on a donkey so weak. He's got no army. He's got no swords. Whatever people are going to do to him, they can do to him and he can't stop it. And he also rides in crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane take this cup away from me. And on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he finds it incredibly difficult to do what God has called him to do. All three of these aspects you see in the story of Jesus. Um, in Hamlet, 
Um, Shakespeare has Hamlet say this. this is one of the famous monologues or soliloquies, maybe you remember it, that, that Hamlet, who is very much in many ways a Job-like figure um, in, in just having the taste of life go out of his mouth, he just finds being alive so burdensome, so frustrating, so much meaningless suffering. And Hamlet says, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth foregone all custom of exercises. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me now to be a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave or changing firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Wonder, astonishment, why? And now appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapor. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. Sounds like Psalm 8. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights me not. And he's where Job is, which is, I'm tired of this. I don't want to be this for God. I don't want to be this for the world. And so let's end with this before I just draw a couple of conclusions and set us up for next week to hear Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. What does Job do in light of this? And this is probably the practice that we struggle with the most as Christians today, I think. In verse 11 of Job 7, he says, therefore, because of this, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, has not man a hard service on earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Later on, he'll say, you know what it means to be a human being? Two things, to have very few days and for those days to be full of trouble. That's what it means to be a human being. You're here for a moment and the whole time it's really hard. That's what it means to be a human being. And so he says in verse 11, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth I will speak in the anguish of my spirit and I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He doesn't stuff it down. He doesn't spiritualize away. This is actually really, really fun right through gritted teeth. Um, he opens his mouth and he laments. And so the third thing you need to be able to do if you are a human being is you need to be able to lament when it's really hard. You need to be able to respond to suffering, not by saying, this is great. Thank you, God. More, please. Um, or just saying, if I wasn't just so sinful, I would enjoy this more. But to actually say, this is really hard. And I'm at the end of my rope. And to lament, not just to ask for the change, although that too, but to lament. And we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross, throughout his life, Jesus regularly laments. We're not going to read it next week week. But shortly after he rides into Jerusalem, he is up on the hill and he looks at the city. And you remember what he does? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed for you to turn back to your creator. And yet you would not. And like a mother hen, I want to wrap my arms around you and protect you, but you would not. That, that he laments that he cannot force people to be protected from their own sin. And he laments that that's the way the world is, that, that there's that aspect to the human condition. That's not despair, that's not unbelief, but nonetheless, he laments. And so let me wrap it up with, with two things. The first is just to give you a, a couple of questions. The, the first question is this, do you recognize yourself in all three of these answers? That you're crowned with glory and honor, that you are incredibly weak and fragile, and that it is really hard to be a human being, and that the world breaks your heart. And that suffering is part of it. 
do you shy away from one or two of those and lean into one of the other ones more? For some of us, and I probably am more like this naturally, the dark stuff feels more naturally resonant with me. I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what that is. But regularly waking up with joy and astonishment and wonder, I have to like, I have to get ready for that. That's hard for me to lean into. Some of you, it's the opposite. You love the fun stuff and you run away from the hard stuff and you do not deal with it. But to be a human being, the hard stuff, the great stuff, and all of it, fragile and weak and dependent. Don't shy away from any of that. And, and then even more specifically, do you actually relate to God in all three of those categories? Do you not just acknowledge your weak, but do you come to your creator in your weakness? Do you not just acknowledge that the world is amazing, but actually turn it into praise to your creator? Do you actually not just say, this sucks right now, but do you actually bring it and lament to your creator? Um, because to be a human being is not just to be positioned toward the world in a certain way in glory and weakness and suffering, but it's also to be positioned to your creator in a certain way. Um, and the second thing, and we'll get ready for this next week with Palm Sunday, is do you see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all three of these things? That he, for us and for our salvation, he entered into our situation. I love Kirk's expression. He injected himself into this and he took it on himself in the glory of it, in the weakness of it, in the suffering of it. And, and as we end, just to give us encouragement, both for ourselves as well as to connect to the story of Jesus, at a certain point, if you're paying attention to the gospel, you have to ask the question, why did God even bother to do this for us? Why not just let us go into oblivion once we'd screwed it up? Why did Jesus do this? And if you remember this, here, here's what comes in my mind as we end. Remember back in 2008, 2009, the banks had all screwed up on Wall Street. There was the, the housing crisis. And there was this expression, too big to fail. These banks are too big to fail. I want to say that in a very real sense, human beings are the opposite of that, that we are too weak to fail, that we are too overwhelmed to fail, but also we are too significant to God to just let this project fail. Now, that is not to say that God loves us because we are worth it. It's not to say that, that ultimately the gospel is about us, but it is to say the cross shows us our sin. It shows us God's mercy and grace, but it also shows how much God values us. That God did not do this for angels, the writer of Hebrews reminds us of. God did not do this for ants and for planets and for other things. God has done this for us because we are a really big deal to him. And there is wonder and astonishment and mystery and why that would be the case. But the cross is God coming for us because we matter to him. And so let's remember that with wonder, with humility, with lament, and let's see it in the story of Jesus as we get ready to enter into Holy Week next Sunday. Let me pray.